I want to move on to kind of where we're really seeing, I, I've always said that law is kind of the pimple of the culture. It's revealing to us how we're actually engaging. It's revealing to us who we really are. And right now, everybody's seeing the problem of the culture. Um, they're seeing the problem of every social ill, and they're running right to the law to fix it. And the, the way that they're running there, they're going to create a snowball of the bigger monster that we already have. But, but that's not what their intent is, but they're helping the other side do it. Um, and that's, and I'm a, <laughs> look, I'm a theonomist, right? I want good biblical Christian laws. I want a Christian nation. I want it all, right? I believe that. But how we get there is as important as implementing the laws themselves. Amen. So we, that's something that I, I really want to talk about. And so Jason's been talking about revolution, um, the cosmological revolution in modernity. I want to talk about with David Fowler, the cosmological revolution in law and how we got here um, and how it's, and how it shaped us into this new kind of person. So, David, from there, okay, great, so in you. Great. You know, I, I didn't comment earlier except for the important observation about Bobby McFerrin, you know, that, that he won, Thomas Jefferson won. But um, interestingly, the poem that you read at the beginning, where it says the world ends when its metaphor dies, was in a book called Law and Revolution. Mm. and uh, written by Harold Berman, who is of Jewish ancestry, but became a Christian, taught at Harvard. And he wrote a second book that some of y'all might enjoy. It's not too legal, uh, but it's called Law and Revolution II, and it's the impact of the um, what he called the German and the English revolutions on law. But what I... <clears throat> I want to say to begin with, for some of you who may be new to some of this way of thinking, and, and I run into this in my profession, I start talking about things with, with leaders of national organizations, some of what I'll be talking about, and they say, well, that, I mean, that, that might could work, but, you know, 100 years maybe in the ivory towers and the academic institutions, and from now on we could, we could, we could do this, you know. But right now, I have to win this lawsuit, mm -hmm. okay? And I want to let you know that it was not until June 26, 2015, that my cosmos began to change. So the extent that I say anything that you think, wow, that guy's really studied, I bet he'd been, he'd been steeped in this stuff, you know, for 30 years. It's like, no, seven years. I was taught the same godless understanding of law as every other lawyer that I know. And sadly, I grew up in churches, and while I attend parish now, I didn't grow up here, that gave me no conception of Christianity or the cosmos sufficient to go to law school and understand that I was being taught a conception of law that had not existed until the last hundred years. Mm. And I was defenseless. Okay? So, um, I think, Doug, you said earlier, we, we, something like, we, we got the arguments, we know what to do, we, and, and I want to submit to you that I don't think, in the sphere that I run in, and, and I hope not too many of them are listening, we I haven't yet identified the problem. I now, hope they are listening. I, me too. That's what I was just saying. <laughs> well, well I'll, be, I'll, be, I'll be the outcast. Well, I'm already the outcast. So You're I not guess, yet? What are you doing I wrong? I guess the leper, 
leper can't be more outcast than he was. But, but uh, the things that I talk about are uniformly rejected, uniformly rejected by every national and state policy organization I'm in close association with throughout the country. Christian. Christian. <laughs> me and Dr. Grant thinking this. I like the fact that me and you, I'm with you, Doc. I so, feel good about myself I want to give you an example. Yesterday, every week I write a commentary. For those of you who don't know, you can sign up for it. It's free. I don't solicit money. You know, like, if you'd like to read today's commentary, here it is. You know, download and sign up our stuff. Just read them, pass them on. But I wrote one yesterday on judicial politics. And... I began this way, at some point, the lack of candor about the nature of law for the sake of playing judicial politics catches up with you. We operate today, even in the Christian circle, as if all law is positivized. In other words, it's not grounded in any truth or reality about the nature of the way the world is. Okay. It comes out of our head. I'm going to cover that in just a moment because it, it relates to this philosophical shift. But many of you know, states have been passing these laws against transgenderism, right? You know, you, you can't chop off the child's scrotum or the breast butts and all that. And so I happened to run across a case involving a parent organization suing a public school because the school was, was helping their children with, trans, with gender identity and transition issues without telling the parents. Now, you can imagine, you'd be a little upset when all of a sudden your 14-year-old says, I'm not Bob, I'm Roberta. And you're like, where did that come from? Okay. So they sued. The Christian organization defend, asserted that you can't do that because you're violating parental rights. And we would say, yay, great, good. Praise God. The downside is that the ACLU has sued against Tennessee's version of the law. <laughs> and, and the ACLU and Lambda Legal have said, you're violating parental rights. Mm -hmm. My child is confused about his gender. He has gender dysphoria. There's a treatment for it called lopping off the scrotum or puberty blockers or removing breast buds, and you're denying that treatment, and you're interfering in my right as a parent to protect the health and nurture of my children. Okay? Now, the legal positivist doesn't say there's anything true about the human nature. We've already discussed. We got rid of nature. There's nothing really true about male or female. There's nothing, therefore, that can be really true about the parent-child relationship. The only thing we have in law is our decisions from the Supreme Court. Mm. Now, we have to appreciate that when we decide to play judicial politics, what we're doing is saying, can I find a Supreme Court opinion that has words in it that sound supportive of my idea mm. and mm -hmm. use those words from the Supreme Court to tell the appellate court or the district court, you have to, you have to let me do something. It's my Bible. Okay. So it's not grounded in the reality, it's just grounded in whatever the judge said. Now when you're going to play politics, you're not interested in what a Joseph Story said in the first commentaries of the Constitution in 1833, because how's that going to help you predict what the nine people on the Supreme Court are going to do today? Mm. So you try to find the opinions of recent days that says, well, 
we got opinions from these seven or eight judges. And I know they spend tons of time reading every opinion that Dr. George Grant has read so they can figure out how do I get his vote. See, I'm not arguing law. I'm playing politics. It's sort of what's the spin that will play to this audience. Now, what's the spin that plays to Justice Farley and Justice Knox? And so, Doug, when you said something about we have the right arguments, we do, but we don't know what they are because we've divorced ourselves from our history because of a cosmological revolution. So I'm going to read to you this brief, and you tell me who wrote it. The Christian, Lambda Legal, or the ACLU. Now here is the, here is the uh, outline of the argument. <laughs> You know, you put kind of the outline and then you write it. Because the policy trammels parents' constitutional rights, courts have a duty to intervene. The school district's gender identity policy terminates parents' chief role in children's upbringing. The Constitution requires the, the court to intervene. Now, here's the argument. Quoting from the United States Supreme Court, most children, even in adolescence, simply are not able to make sound judgments concerning many decisions, including their need for mental health care or treatment. Parents can and must make those judgments. Parham, 44-2 U.S. Supreme Court, 603. And, quote, neither state officials nor federal courts are equipped to review them, end quote. Hmm. Under our Constitution, it is parents who must, quote the Supreme Court here, retain a substantial, if not the dominant, role in the decision, absent a finding of neglect or abuse, and the traditional presumption that parents act in the best interest of their child should apply, end quote, United States Supreme Court. Who wrote that? Christian or the ACLU trying to strike down Tennessee's law? That's led to legal. That's the Christian policy or legal organization that influences every Christian policy organization in this country that I know. Now, I asked this organization, this is why, see, I'm going to be the outcast of outcasts. This will be the only show I can be on. Well, we got you, I bro. called and I just kind of asked a generic question. So how are we going to distinguish between the parental rights that support the ethical views we like, but not support parental rights of ethical views we don't like. Now, you mentioned David French is right now struggling with, I better let them chop off the scrotum because if they don't, I might not be able to resist a COVID shot or, re or give my child a COVID shot. Or, or we're going to damage parental rights. Yeah, yeah right. it's just parental rights. And they said, well, we got a team of people working on it. Now, I thought, you've been going around the country advocating for these laws, bringing in lawyers to testify to these laws, and you haven't thought how to distinguish between preserving a scrotum and cutting one off. So I said, well, the reason I'm really asking is because you wrote this brief that says this. And how could that not just be lifted right out of your Christian brief and stuck in the ACLU's brief and in the opinion of a federal judge who says, I must follow the Supreme Court precedent, and you just quoted me three straight sentences from the Supreme Court. They didn't know. That's the world I live in. 
It's a world that says the only good we can do is stop the bad, never realizing that we have the bad because we lost the good, and there's no interest in restoring the good. Mm. There's no interest in restoring the good because we don't know our history in order to restore the good, and we're stuck in a cosmological, metaphorical system that has no real law. So when I start talking, somebody said earlier, somebody said something about people look at me with like seven eyes, and it's kind of like, I get that all the time. I say, why don't we talk about the common law? The reason we don't want to talk about the common law is, one, most of us don't know what it is. I didn't know what it was. And I want to just tell you how I came to start thinking about the common law. When the Supreme Court, June 26, 2015, says marriage... There are no embodied truths about humans. Male and female have have no bearing on this thing called marriage. If you couldn't see then where that would go, right to transgenderism, you weren't paying attention. You were just being a positivist that says, well, I guess two guys can get married. And I've been saying since 2015, if, if man and woman don't matter in the one institution historically defined as man and woman, why will it matter in a swimming pool or a track or a bathroom? Okay, i got brochures over here for God-given marriage. If you want to read it, go watch the videos. After that decision, a group of all the policy people and these lawyers, we all met in D.C., and it was, how are we going to address Obergefell? I was excited, man. I didn't know what to do, you know. Who are these uncircumcised Philistines in black robes who can defy the creational ordinance of God that we are man and woman and marriage is defined that way? It's like saying, no, three sides can make a square. No, 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 no. You know what we talked about the whole, whole two days? How do we protect religious liberty? I came home, can I say this, pissed off. No, you can't say that. (laughs) This ain't my church. Now, wait a minute. This is the pastor who was just talking about a second blessing earlier. (laughs) (laughs) And when I tell the elders tomorrow at church, (laughs) I'll I'll be preaching the sermon for you. (laughs) Okay. So are you going to tell them how you taught me how to sign a marriage license? Oh, yeah. Well, no, you tell them. So, so you, you tell them. I mean, You're if the you preacher. sign a marriage license as issued by the state of Tennessee, you're affirming a Burgerfeld. We got another pastor back here, Paul Becker, a good Lutheran brother in Kingsport. Paul, glad you drove down. He's, not, he's doing the same thing. So we have to annotate every marriage license. Every time I do premarital counseling, I sit down with a couple and I say, I, I want you to know that when... Uh, you go get your marriage license, I'm going to annotate it in a way that is technically illegal. (laughs) Because I've got to clarify precisely what this marriage is. Mm. Not as defined by the state, but as defined by God, and fortunately, presently, the Tennessee State Constitution. And so I annotate every marriage license. Because I am resisting the lure 
of them defining what God has not only defined, but ordained and created. What do you write on the annotation? Um, Amen. Amen. I, 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 uh, I don't know if you remember. I don't. I gave it to you. <laughs> Three year, five years ago, or something. But yeah, I I, I actually say yeah. um, I, I, I do a little carrot where it talks about you know what marriage is, and and I say as defined by Genesis chapter two uh, and Tennessee State Constitution article, article eleven section eleven 18. whatever whatever section. Yeah. So, so also the reason that's important as well, and this is going back to a Burgerfell. It wasn't just marriage that got abolished at a Burgerfell. The don't cosmos think, got abolished. Which means if human if, beings that's, were if, abolished if covenant, by a Burgerfell, if, if that's the case, then what are kids? Right. So, so you didn't just lose your marriage in a Burgerfell. You lost your children. That's right. In a Burgerfell, we lost a generation, and our task as the church is to go and win the generation. So you, what you're writing on the marriage certificates is, a, is requiring now that the state looks at the children differently than the current situation. So those people actually have a chance to keep certain things out of the, from the state away from their kids, where some of us who have the old contract, if we've abolished a man and a woman and their relationship, then we will abolish what the fruit that comes from that relationship. The very stem of that now doesn't belong to these two in the same manner anymore because these categories are gone. That's so right. whatever these categories produce doesn't really, they don't produce it. It doesn't belong to them. It belongs to the state. Right. I asked the county clerk, I said, uh, so what do you do with my marriage licenses? When you get them, what do you do with them? And uh, she said, well, I, I just try not to look at it. <laughs> but they file them because he signed it. They file them. It's like, and, okay. And nobody's come after me yet. But, but, but see, that's, that's a small way of resistance. Okay. Imagine, in fact, one of my great friends, and you, you know him too, Jeff Schaefer. Yeah. I think it was Jeff who said, what the Supreme Court assumed is that we would all be compliant. If every pastor who believes in Genesis 1 started making those notations, or said, I'm sorry, I'd love to marry you, but you know what? State law says marriage is any two people. But the governor can marry you. So I want all of my members who are getting married to go to Governor Bill Lee and ask that he sign their marriage licenses. Then the governor would pay attention to me. Because imagine how many Christian marriages are being done in the state of Tennessee and how how painful it would be if they all kept showing up at the governor saying, I understand you lawfully can do this. Now, here's the problem going to be for the governor. Once he does it as a government official, signs that marriage license, he now can't turn away a gay couple without discriminating. We have the solution within our hands, but we won't exercise. Now, I don't want to get too far off on that, but, but there's the cosmology. So the first sentence of Obergefell, get this. The Constitution, this is, this is the Genesis 1 of Obergefell. This is the new cosmos that you live in, whether you know it or not. The Constitution promises liberty to all within its reach, to certain rights within a lawful realm to define and express their identity. 
Now, what the sentence is saying is, you have no objective real identity. Mm -hmm. The lawful realm, if you take comfort in that, is whatever the Supreme Court says it is. And the brief that was filed by this Christian national leading international policy organization, in essence says, judge, there is no true law, no given objective reality outside your head that constrains or limits your decision. So we have now turned all parental rights over to a majority of nine people on the United States Supreme Court. And if the people in Loudoun, Virginia don't shut up complaining about their parental rights when they've not attacked the root, I'm going to go nuts. Now, I sound a little irritated, and I am. <laughs> but you see, they don't have any basis to assert a parental right other than I got more votes than you. And someday, when they have fewer votes than the other side, they will have no parental rights. They don't exist. Not in a cosmos without God. And not in a cosmos that doesn't have a trinity. I was just emailing with George last week. Without the trinity... There is no basis for which, for which authority that rests in God gets communicated to the created order. You may say, well, God's, God's authority, and he can, he can delegate authority. But the point, Herman Bobbing, and this is what I was writing about, if God could not communicate the fullness of who God is to the Son in an absolute sense, so that he's fully the Son, then, then how could God communicate himself to the creature in a relative sense? See, without the Trinity, and this is how I was raised, God's the authority, God's the moral authority, blah, 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 blah. But I didn't know that without the Trinity, I don't have a basis to get God's authority down to me. Which is why Islam creates hellholes. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And why why the epistemology of Islam makes no sense whatsoever, no, which means that there can no, never be a path to progress in Islam. That's right. In Islam, you're always stuck in the present. So now, whatever is, is. Let me give you this little sheet so you can see. George said something earlier today that was good, and I'm, gonna, I'm going to uh, plagiarize or modify it. You said <laughs> something about processes. You talked about we live in a world of processes. And, and I've been thinking in terms of the terminology of y'all, we live in a machine now. Mm -hmm. We don't live in a dance. We live in a machine. And everything is run by these laws of nature. And they just are what they are. So I always struggled with the concept of sovereignty because, see, I'd bought into the machine. Mm. So we use the word sovereignty without meaning if we bought the cosmology that we live in a machine. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, let's talk about this shift in the metaphor that you were bringing up and y'all were talking about with William Blackstone. Now, who William Blackstone is, as you saw, he was a, um, he was a product of Augustine. I didn't realize that this morning in that sense, but, you know, this, there was a long conversation here taking place in history, in the legal sphere that my generation has not learned about for 100 years. So when I heard about Blackstone the first time in 1991, I've been out of school eight years. I went to the public library. They had only one volume. I read it, but it had an introduction. You can find it online. Just Google William Blackstone, Commentaries on the Laws of England, PDF, and you can find one. 
And I opened it up, and it begins this way. Law, in its most general and comprehensive sense, signifies a rule of action. It's applied indiscriminately to all kinds of action, whether animate, inanimate, rational, or irrational. And he goes on through and says, so when the supreme being formed the universe, uh-oh, you see what he just did? He rooted everything he's going to talk about from the, from the preface of the nature of law to everything else right there. So in that court case, the... the uh, Christian yeah. organization, that's what they should have done. Yes. Yes. Now I'm going to get to that. Okay. And so when he created matter, he established rules of motion, and then he goes on down, ellipses, ellipses, ellipses. Man considered as a creature, well, there we go, must necessarily be subject to the law of his creator, for he's an entirely dependent being. And since he depends on his maker for everything, he has to conform to his maker's will and everything. <laughs> Now, you don't so see that's that. the first, and that's the third of the creation ordinances <laughs> right in the first two paragraphs. That's right. Now, he develops them later by saying, so we have certain absolute rights because we have duties to God. So we've disconnected the concept of rights to duties. Okay. Which is the eighth creation ordinance. What's the eighth one? I don't remember. Uh, the eighth creation ordinance is uh, that uh, responsibility is... Oh is given to man, and uh, therefore okay. he's called to, uh, to multiply and okay. be fruitful. Okay, okay. Mm. And, and so then he says, so therefore you have a right to personal security. That was the term they used, which meant I have a, a right to my life, my limbs, my body, my health, and my reputation. Cancel culture, uh -uh, because when you destroy my reputation, I'm kicked out of society. See? Mm. Okay. That was personal security. And, and the government had a duty to protect your personal security so that I couldn't just punch George, and George is like, is anybody going to prosecute me? Well, not in New York, right? Okay, but <laughs> Anyway, it was California. It was liberty, which was the right to move around, and property. We see that in the due process clause reduced to life, liberty, and property. That's where it came from, William Blackstone. He then develops it into saying there are three fundamental relationships, master-servant, husband and wife, parent and child. So see, he's taking this, as George is saying, and he works it all out. This is Fifth Commandment stuff, by the way. Yeah. Right? That's inside the Fifth Commandment. The other thing, too, I just want to point out real quickly. Yeah. This is, long, no, 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 no. I know you, no, you, no, this is great. But I, one of the things that we don't think about, and I think we need to think about this more, is how much of a blessing that we live in right now there's a fight in the Christian nationalism world, um, a pro and opposed that are arguing um, Christian culture isn't necessarily a great thing. But the tradition that we're living in is a Calvinistic tradition that has permeated the society in such a way that we don't even know how to think outside of it. Right? Even the, in atheists. Even in atheists. The that's tradition. Tom Holland's whole, his, that's right. his whole thesis in his magisterial book that every Christian ought to read. Uh, this is a non-Christian writing a book about why everything we do is in accord with the uh, Christian metaphor. So you got those three pieces to that, right? You have priesthood of the believer. That's a Calvinistic tradition and thought from Western, that his Western culture has taken on. The, um, the law or submission to God's law is the standard by which everybody is submissive to and gets judged by even rulers. Right. And then the locomotion, the ability to be with who you choose to be with and do business with those people. That is a Calvinistic tradition. It just so happens to be 
part of the fight that we're dealing with on the globalistic scale as well. Sure. That Putin and Russia and China are pushing on those pieces because they know they're soft right now. They understand Western culture better than we do. And so they're asking, are you going to be a rule-based order based off the tradition of Calvinism that you've, that you've hold to on the West, or is it going to be pure power and authority? Right. Right? And they're testing that right now. That's the real test. It's not about um, Ukraine and all this. No, it's about the Calvinistic tradition. Is the West going to be that place that is Calvinistic in its nature, or has it fallen away from its tradition? Yeah. Anyway, okay. Yeah, so- Mar- Marilyn Robinson writes a book about the same thing about art, the tradition of Western art that it's fundamentally Calvinistic and that that's, and that when we move away from it, the art gets bad. Right. Right. And, um, let let me, let me throw in here just one, one little quick thing. Um, in law and revolution, I, uh, the first book by Berman, he posits that the, the first great revolution that developed to the Western civilization and Western legal tradition was the papal revolution in what, 1050, something like that. And he said it was a little bit of a break from Augustine where we thought of, of the heavenly city as it was separate. And, and, and what he says in here is that we, be, we began to realize that, wait a minute, he, God brought about a new creation. We should, we should start debabalizing. We should weed the garden. Okay? And so the Pope said, uh, you know, the church shouldn't be under the king. And so they sort of broke off. Now that, that led to sort of two swords, was the concept that the so the canon law developed and, and then along comes Luther in 1500s and we have another revolution where he says well wait a minute the church isn't really a legal organization over here um, it's a it's a it's a different nature of things okay and then Calvin comes along later and he and he sort of lays out the sphere sovereignty stuff that there's not two kingdoms there's one kingdom and everything's under the king okay so that's Versailles. Versailles, Vers- yes, that's right. So let's, let's go to the next part, just so you can see the shift in the metaphor. This is Oliver Wendell Holmes, who uh, bought into evolution, strong, atheist guy, and he wrote a book on the common law. Now, this is how common law is viewed today by lawyers. A friend of mine, I won't mention his name because he may not want to, but he's taught me about common law. And and he said this to a group of lawyers in D.C. who all went like, could you write that down? He said, first of all, we need to know what the common law is not. It is not judge-made law. The idea of judge-made law is a perversion and defamation of the common law invented by Oliver Wendell Holmes and taught by the School of Legal Realism in the 19th century or the 20th, over the last 100 years is what he said. Since the Civil War. Yeah, and and that's what we now know. We now have Oliver Wendell Holmes' jurisprudence governing everything. Now, Hmm. here's what he says. So he's now writing on the common law. The object of the book is to present a general view of the common law. To accomplish the task, other tools are needed besides logic. (laughs) It's something to show that the consistency of a system requires a particular result. In other words, this follows logically after that. But that's not all. The life of the law has not been logic. It is experience. Mm, mm, mm. Mm. So, so Blackstone is starting with, well, let's look at the created order over here. 
we see works of God. They all ordered by law. Well, I'm a work of God. I'm ordered by law. I remember Abraham Kuyper saying that in, in his section on political authority, lecture three, he said, we deduced a threefold sovereignty from the fact that God is sovereign. Okay? So you see here logic. It's being replaced now by experience. And then you can see the last sentence. The substance of the law at any given time pretty merely, nearly corresponds, so far as it goes, with what is then understood to be convenient. But its form and machinery, that's why, you know, I love you talked about processes, machineries. Just put, put you in the widget. Mm-hmm. See, you're not a real human being. You're a widget to go into the fascist economy that our Republicans support. Lord have mercy. Okay, now, now I don't have any friends. Ooh. And the degree to which... <laughs> thank you, George, I have one. Okay. And the degree to which it's able to work out desired results depends much upon its past. So we're learning from the experience, but it's not rooted to anything. Now, Roscoe D. Pound, dean of Harvard from 1916 to 1937, so he's kind of coming a little after Oliver Wendell Holmes, he, he spells out the cosmological shift. He says, nothing has been so upsetting to political and juristic thinking as the growth of the idea of contingency in physics, the Copenhagen School of subatomic particles and all that. It has taken away the analogy. Can you picture the word metaphor there? Metaphor. Yeah. The image, the picture that we have of the universe from which philosophers had reached the very idea of law. Mm. You see, Cicero says, there's true law in right agreement with nature. It's reason, and it applies in Greece. It's not one law in Greece and Rome and another in you know, this place, and it's universal and applies to all man. See, he, by just his reasoning, he's thinking there must be this kind of law here, but he said, once we found out the heavens had been shaken, the earth had to be shaken too. And the analogy that the philosophers, not the Christians, it, it, it deprived political and jurist thought of the pattern. So again, see the concept of the analogy, the metaphor, to which they conceived? Mm. Well, that's a typo. Conceived of government. Well, that was a terrible typo. I did it earlier this morning. Physics had been the rock on which they had built. So as Karl Marx said, if you can change the, as I've heard you say many times, if you can change the heavens, you don't even have to argue for atheism anymore. It changed everything. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things I wanted to say at the beginning when or posed back to you a little bit, was Christians don't believe the metaphor of a new creation. We don't believe we live in a new creation. And George, you correct me as my pastor, but I've been reading Galatians again. You get to the very end, and he says, circumcision and circumcision really don't matter. For the first time last night, I thought of that as, is it called a synecdoche? A, Mm -hmm. A word that substitutes for the whole of something. So he's not really just talking about circumcised or not, he's talking about that system of, of concept. Uh, uh, he said, that doesn't matter. New creation. You see, the world changed with Jesus. Mm. They mm. realized we now live in a new creation. I have a metaphor. It, it's a new metaphor laid on top of the old metaphor that perfects the fallen the, the ruined metaphor and restores it, debabalizes it, weeds the garden. And that's nothing that's ever taught in any law school. I grew up in the church. 
My mother was playing the piano at the church the Sunday night before I was born on Monday. And I never heard any of this. So I was as defenseless as everybody, June 26, 2015. So if, which is if, Obergefell, right? Which is Obergefell. Yeah. So if I can be this radically transformed as to have no friends in just seven years, Imagine what the rest of the world could do if we all changed. Fellow countrymen. By the way, before, uh, uh, six months before the Obergefell decision was made, uh, I knew it was coming. I knew what direction the court was going to take this case. It was well publicized, and it was, it was clear. The cosmology had shifted. And so the elders of this church wrote a white paper <clears throat> I, I wrote it, and they amended it and clarified it where I got too theological and muddy. And you can actually hear it on Resistance and Reformation. It's this week's uh, broadcast uh, episode. But w we knew that this was coming, and I wanted to make sure that before a Obergefell, we took our stand on marriage, sexuality, uh, the nature of human beings, uh, before Obergefell, so that we could put a stake in the ground and say, this is what reality is, this is what we believe, and this is what we're going to stand on, and it's why pastors like us have to amend every marriage license, and now we've got the stake in the ground that says, we're not budging, this is where we stand. So how many pastors, how many churches should have been standing with us? <laughs> We're not talking about COVID, though, right? And we're it. <laughs> yeah. so, so I've had pastors tell me, well, I don't like common law. And I want to say, well, then you don't like God's cosmos. Now, I, I want to just <laughs> say one last thing before we, we open it really up. But in the back is this little brief. And if you're married or with somebody, just take one copy. I think I made 30. Cause. But here's how I began. I had a, a lawyer from another, William, you know, you saw the email, who's with another big national, you would know the name if I brought it up, said, you did a really great job of connecting the Dobbs and, and Bruin decisions from last June with the Supreme Court to Blackstone, to common law, to transgenderism. So in this brief, I'll just pull out these few little things. The Supreme Court said last year, in a more significant case, really, from a law standpoint, than Dobbs, which reversed Roe versus Wade. They said, quote, the interpretation of the Constitution must be, quote, centered on constitutional text and history. Okay? So, here's the history. Quote, this is from Joseph Story, the youngest man ever nominated to the United States Supreme Court, wrote the first comprehensive commentary on the United States Constitution in 1833, taught at Harvard, and was said to be the brains behind Chief Justice Marshall. Mm-hmm. He wrote this, the common law is our birthright and inheritance, and that our ancestors brought hither with them upon immigration all of it which was applicable to their situation. The whole structure of our present jurisprudence stands upon the original foundations of the common law. The precepts of the common law were a nomenclature of which the Framers of the Constitution were familiar. It was the lexicon from which they drew the word person and life and liberty and property. Consequently, and happiness. No, oh. happiness is not in the Constitution. No, but oh. it's in the Declaration. Yeah, it is in the Declaration. It, yeah, yeah. But the whole concept. That's right. So, 
So the Supreme Court said, these are all post-14th Amendment cases here. Uh, the interpretation of the Constitution is necessarily influenced by the fact its provisions are framed in the language of the English common law and to be read in light of its history. No Christian organization wants to make that kind of argument. Because it's a losing argument? I think they think it's losing because people won't understand it, but I think it's also, it doesn't fit in a cosmos that's, right. that's a machine where every law has to be self-created. <laughs> you see? They live under Pound and, and Wendell Holmes, and so I don't get this. So to my podcast from Friday, and I'll get to you here, my podcast from Friday, I take clips from the from the arguments made by a Republican lawyer in the state house who says common law doesn't exist. There is no such thing as common law. We create the common law. The legislature creates the common law. That guy is a lost ball in high waist. How would history be more grounded though given like story decisis or just go back and go look this was decided in history this is what history said what if you're wrong about history? How's that grounding it in something more objective, more true, more godly than what, what our preferred outcome. So the question is, why is that not the same thing as the experience that Oliver Wendell Holmes is arguing? Well, let me tell you what, what at least my thinking is. Okay, What the Dobbs decision said, along with Bruin, which was a Second Amendment case, is they said, well, if we look and we go back all the way to Bracton, and we come forward 700 years, abortion was always a crime. So are you telling me that when they adopted the 14th Amendment in 18, whatever it is, I wrote it in here, uh, 18, uh, 1868, and it was still a crime in every state that they intended the Constitution to protect and secure a right to commit a crime? That can't be what the Constitution means. Now, they're not buying a cosmology. They're just saying, I'm interpreting the text in light of the text and its history, and the history shows me that the Constitution couldn't have secured a right to a crime. So what I'm arguing in this brief here about parental rights is, this, this, is, the, this is the key, is uh, what... what um, it's in here somewhere, but, but it, it quotes uh, Joseph Story, who says, uh, one of the things that we adopted of the common law that was for sure was the concept of the Magna Carta, the right to protection from personal injury. Okay, so I just took Blackstone personal injury, Joseph Story saying, this is what we adopted. The Constitution was written in light of that. In 1828 Webster's Dictionary, it says that corporal injuries are separate from spiritual or subjective injuries. So are you telling me, so now I brought it all the way up to the 14th Amendment and I'm now making the Dobbs argument as a strictly practical matter. So are you telling me the 14th Amendment codified and inscribed and enshrined and protected the right to commit a battery? The right to abuse. The right to abuse. And, and now what I'm also trying to do is force on the doctors is health care. This, this is where you use the term minister of health yep. versus the minister of the gospel. The minister of health, his, his job was to say, what helps a sick person get healthy? 
Health was not, how can I take a healthy person and rob him of health? Make him sick. Make him unfruitful. You see? So the medical profession is breaching its own duty not to injure any person. Because they're operating in that upper story of the theoretical rather than dealing with the particulars in the lower story. So, so in a sense, my brief is saying parental rights are grounded in real things. Every person, we know at common law, person is actually includes the unborn, but it, it, it would certainly be a 14-year-old, right? Has a right at common law, an absolute right, to not be injured in their body, their health, and their limbs. I got, I got the data. I got the history. I can show it to you. And therefore, every person owes a duty not to injure the other person. See, rights and duties correspond to each other. In fact, Bacchus says that. He said, we tend to talk about rights, but really rights are duties. Okay? So therefore, the doctor has a duty not to injure a healthy person's limbs, body, or organ. And a parent can no more authorize a doctor to injure their child than I can um, pay Chalk Knox to bash George Grant over the head with a, with a hammer and say, I didn't do anything. You see? Yeah, but, but, so we but, give a doctor money and authorize him to violate his duty. You're, you're, there's a lot of assumptions in here. One of them is that we know what injury looks like. Right? Yeah. That's part of, yeah. well, this is, the problem is they're already injured because they're not who they think they are. Right. And so we're fixing something that's broken. So if, they don't, if they're not understanding this, and then they're definitely not going to understand what injury looks, what normal looks like. But I think this is where the, you've got the, the idea, because a, a big part of the idea that history is where we look has to do with the objectivity of communication, the object, objectivity of language, that language can, that a word can have a real meaning. And, and we can know what a person who said it meant. Most, most legal theory is now based on an English philosopher of language named Wittgenstein who said meaning is use. So however a group of people uses a word, that's its real meaning. And so, this is, um, so Bill Clinton was, he was trained with Wittgensteinian language theory. And so... When he went up and had to answer, if some of you guys remember, and he was he was on the stand, he said, "It depends on what is, is is right," because Wittgenstein posits the nine meanings of the word "is," and as long as he gets to pick which one it is, he can actually get out of this legal problem, right? Well, the um, the older understanding of language is well, when they said that, we say, "What was what did the word mean then?" It had, and that's how we understand what it is that they meant. And so you can look at a law that was, you know, say, written in the 1700s. And if you have access to the, a dictionary from that time, um, prob probably won't because dictionaries come in later. But if you have access to what the language means at the time, then you can say this is what he meant to communicate. This is what the law means. And you, you don't get to say, well, we can we can just use the words the way, whatever way we want or whatever way the, 
the it's group in the charge. language so much that now you can't find your way back using a logos because they've destroyed language. <laughs> or they've tried to. They've tried to, yeah. Right around the same time as all these other guys are writing, right? Early mm -hmm. 1900s, right. something happened. Now language is destroyed. Now you're trying to pick up the pieces and go back and go, I'm going to fix the chords through this document. I'm going to tell them, I'm going to annotate this document. And this is my little fight back. That's right. But well, isn't language so lost now? No, it's not lost because human beings necessarily yearn for communication. So th this is one of the reasons why Antonio Gramsci uh, argued that the great battle for the West was no longer a battle over the Bible. It was a battle over the dictionary. What we have failed to understand is the battle is not just over Genesis 1 and 2. It really is the battle over what does in mean? What does the mean? What does beginning mean? Articles and prepositions. Yeah. So, so one, of the, one of the great ways that we have to enter into resistance and reformation is to tackle language. This is why I do the wordplay uh, piece on World Radio, uh, just dealing with language. We've got to understand where the battle lines are. And so part of what we do is we recover that language. People have aha moments and they go, oh, oh, so kindergarten means child garden. And you just make that connection. I made that connection with my five-year-old grandsons this week, and they go, oh, I get it. I now know what kindergarten is for. Uh, we start making those connections. They have those aha moments, and you open up the world of communication again. Uh, there's this incredible scene when Ann Sullivan finally breaks through to Helen Keller, and she has this moment where her heart is lifted up and she understands that there is a God and that uh, there are ways to communicate and the world is not chaos because for the first moment she is able to communicate. So, go ahead. Um, he asked a question at the beginning of this that I don't think got answered and I think it's important, which was, What's the difference between the common law and experience? Why, why is this any different as a foundation than, than experience? And I think there are two answers, and y'all correct me where I, where I fail, but number one, the common law is in fact what our whole constitution was, it, it is the framework, it is the dictionary for what our constitution, Constitution was written. The right. language of the Constitution is out of the common law. We now have a Supreme Court currently that is in fact using that and is in fact saying that the words in our laws are the words that were meant in our Constitution come from the common law and they go to Blackstone all the time. I think in the Dobbs decision yeah. They refer to Blackstone 48 times. Mm -hmm. And so, so, there's a, so that's half the point of why mm -hmm. this is an important thing. 
The other side of it is, from a Christian standpoint, Blackstone's commentary is, as David read to us, is completely founded on the a law of God. A cosmology. The cosmology of God. That's where it all comes through. So much so that who was the great pastor uh, evangelist of one of the great awakenings in America? He was going to be a lawyer. It was um, Finney. Finney. His, his theology got messed up. but And he, and he was going to be a lawyer. And so he started studying Blackstone. And there's so many references to Scripture in Blackstone's commentary on the law that he found Jesus. And it changed his life, and he brought revival to this nation. And so that is, that is the underlying jewel that common law brings us, is it connects back to the cosmology that we've lost in, in the area of law. And so that's, that's why it's different, because it's based on truth. It's built on the truth. Is and there enough truth remaining then to stand on the law, or has it been so compromised at its DNA level by uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes, all this pragmatism? Well, that's why David doesn't have too many friends. Is <laughs> because so many have been, that they have not had this aha moment and go, whoa. So our great power in communicating these truths is our daily life. It's what Knox says all the time. We just need to do our job. We need to go get married. We need to have babies. We need to have them baptized. We need to raise them up in the faith. Mm. And we need to display before a watching world what the truth is because our rejoicing is our great revolt. That's, that's, that's exactly what I want to spend the rest of the time is talking about cosmological revival. What does that look like? Yeah, and it's, it's, it's rediscovering that all creation sings in a cosmic dance. It's recovering all those great stories so that every time we sing the doxology, we imagine a father and a son out discipling um, by, by fly fishing. Uh, it's it's uh, coming together and realizing that every time the family sits down to a dinner, it's a glorious feast and a celebration of God's goodness. It's the outpouring of his grace and his blessing on all things. It's reclaiming Kuiper's notion that there is not one square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not say, mine. And we live that out as if that's true. Uh, and as we live that out as if it is true, we model before a world what the world actually longs for but doesn't know it. Mm. Mm. Well, and one of the things, too, is in a world that is becoming as chaotic as it is, um, it, it doesn't, it's not actually difficult anymore to share the gospel in the sense that you, you meet people that have a marriage that's working, and people will line up to ask for advice. 
right? And as long as you understand... How'd you get her to cook dinner every night and do dishes? <laughs> you actually sit down as a family? Yeah, right, right. Yeah. Everybody's not on their phone? Right. And, and as long as you remember that, and that we're not legalists and that we're not saved by works, every time somebody asks for advice, it's an opportunity to share the gospel. Right. If we're if we're saved by works, then the advice is, well, here, let me tell you the six steps that it got to be this way. If we're not saved by works, then the answer is, oh, my gosh, let me tell you about Jesus, because that's the only reason that any of this works. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So every question for advice, and this is something I learned watching my wife lead people to the Lord over and over. Um, She you know, she'd be out at the playground playing with their kids and the kids would be talking to each other and some mom would come over. How do you get your kids to talk like that? Um, She's like, well, I just think about what it is that, how is it it that Jesus talks to me? And and I try to talk to my kids that way. And, you know, Jesus is so gracious and he gave himself for me on the cross. And have you ever been to church? I'm like, how did you do that? Like, but it's because embedded in her is this overflowing understanding of, the graciousness of God, that it's not by works. Um, so the, when we understand that, all we have to do is live and be ready to say, oh, it's because of Jesus, not me. That's right. right? I was just in uh, England with 20 of my students. Everywhere we went, every waiter, every shop owner, every uh, tour uh, director in every cathedral would say, who are these kids? Where do they come from? <laughs> right. What, what, how, how did you get them to be so polite? How, how did you get them to be so interested? It's easy when we allow our revolt. And did they say that about us in Orlando? They did. <laughs> they did. All except for the, 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 uh, the teacher that got you kicked off a train because you wouldn't wear a mask. Oh. <laughs> but see... <laughs> So, but that's an opportunity to, in and of itself, too. But we, um, we, and it was. And it became an opportunity yeah. for us as a class to talk about it. And that night when we had Bible study together, uh, we, we were able to see what, what is it that is so different about us that the world looks at and says, either that's a threat or, golly, I need that. When the, and um, you with the, uh, the mask thing in particular, one of the things, so I, I'm in Washington, so I don't know what it was like in Tennessee, but in Washington. Not like in Washington. Not like in Washington. We, technically, I mean, not technically, legally, the governor has a 30 days, he can declare an emergency for 30 days, and then he has to get the permission of the Congress to renew an emergency order. And so when the 30 days was up and the Congress refused to get back together, um, legally that emergency order goes away right and so um when you understand the ordered nature of the world and somebody says hey why are you not wearing a mask you can say well legally the emergency's order order is over they're like well no it's not nobody has told me that so well can we talk a little bit about just assuming that the nature of the universe is what god says it is is good news, right? Because um, mm. right? mm. people, all, all of a sudden, it's like, oh, it's, there's, that's what freedom is, right? We're free to obey the law when 
our superiors refuse to, or when the person above us doesn't, we can say, well, no, I still obey the law. The law is my authority, not you. And so I only got kicked out of one store. Um, but I'm big and hairy and smiley, and I can get away with a lot. Uh, and Ed only got kicked off of one train. <laughs> yeah, right. But, but the ordered universe is good news to a people that are growing up in chaos. My wife has been telling our kids since they were little, because we were in California, so we were on the front edge of a lot of this, grow up and get your tables ready, because these people are going to come in hordes looking for order. Right? So mm. get your tables ready to t- tell them about Jesus. Um, so, because the, when the chaos comes in like this, in a tide like this, the, um, it, it's very similar, I think, to what somebody like Francis Schaeffer saw with the hippie movement. The chaos dissipates their, the humanity of people, and when they're exhausted by the chaos, they start looking around for Jesus. Right? And um, we, in, at UCSC, we did a, I found out you can just reserve a room at the library. And so I started reserving a room once a week and posting what class was being taught. <laughs> I taught a class every quarter. I taught a new class. And so pretty soon you start realizing, oh, there's this other school that is being taught in the basement of the library at UCSC. Um, my, and the, but the most popular class that I taught um, was uh, biblical femininity and masculinity. We just posted it, and then we went, students went around and passed out, hey, there's a class you can add in during lunchtime. And, and um, about 50% <laughs> Christian, 50% non-Christian. We had the vice president of the uh, LGBTQ club came. Um, and at the end of it, she, would, she asked questions the whole time and just walked through, Here's, here is what the Bible says about marriage. Here is what the Bible says about masculinity and femininity. Here is... Numbers 30, where a husband can, t- can um, nix the vow of his wife, right? All the passages that they wanted to kind of talk about, but they, weren't, they were afraid to. Um, at, the, at the end of it, the um, woman who was the vice president of the LGBTQ club came up and she said, you know, we're, we're not allowed to talk about this, even at, in, in our club. If you ask questions, you get kicked out. And so she said, this has been really helpful for me. Thank you. Right? And we have, this, we have this opportunity because we, we know Jesus, who is where all things hold together, to see that the world isn't the way everybody is being told it is. Right? It's a lie. Mm. And the chaos um, is a part of the lie. Right? It, come, it grows out of the lie. All we have to do is be ready to tell people about Jesus and live in accordance with the way the world actually is. Um, and, and we'll have waves and waves of generations. If we don't, you were, we were at dinner last night and you were talking about the fact that with your brief, a lot of people aren't jumping on it. Like, yeah, that, that's not going to win. It's not going to work. You're going to get killed out there. Yeah. And the first thing that popped into my head was we don't know the stories. And if we know the stories, we don't believe them. And that was made very evident to me with COVID. Um, because if there ever, we should be the type of people that when we saw the moment with COVID and for the church to stand strong, we should say, this is my time to die. I know. Yes, I, I know. get to be a martyr. I know how this story <laughs> right? goes. I know how this story goes, yeah. right? And so because the people are afraid of death, 
They're afraid of, even when it comes to simple things like evangelizing, oh, it's going to be hard. I'm going to look foolish talking to somebody about Jesus. And it's like, I'm going to die right here in front of these folks. And it's like, but you believe in resurrection. Go die. You believe in resurrection. Go die. So when people are like, oh, it's not going to survive, it's like, that's exactly what they told Jesus. Don't go to the cross, Jesus. It's not how you win. Yep. <laughs> the, the, uh, the incredible story that Plato tells in the Republic of the Cave is a bunch of people sitting in a cave. All they see of the world are the shadows. Uh, and they believe that the shadows are the only reality because that's the direction that they're facing. So the argument that, that the real truth is not a winning strategy is the argument of the cave. I'm not going to turn around. I'm not going to look in the opposite direction. I'm going to keep watching the shadows. That's what the Christian organizations, that's what churches are doing. They're sitting in the cave, and they're looking at the shadows, and they say, yeah, I mean, there may be something else back outside the cave, but I'm not going to look at it because it's not a winning strategy. And Plato's whole point was, get up and go outside the cave. Part of our task is for us to get up and go outside the cave. And, and that goes back to sort of your question in winning and losing. See, when I thought the world was run by law, and law created things, the goal was to pass a law. And if a Supreme Court decision would allow me to do that, that's what I would do. But I realized, and this may be a strong statement, but when I embrace positivism in the law, as a Christian lawyer, I am being atheistic and godless. Now, I, I may know Jesus. I may be great teaching a Sunday school class on justification by faith. But you're a practical atheist. But I'm a practical atheist. And, and so what I'm trying to do by this little five-page brief is to change the conversation, fight over the words again, and say, you know, if I don't win, I really don't care. Yeah. What I would love to do is for the 50 people in this room to walk out of here saying, I see the world differently. Mm. I see law differently. I need to take this brief to my Sunday school class. Amen. I need to begin to change the, the way my elders and my deacons and my pastor think about law. It's a biblical thing and not a political thing. It's only a political thing when you live in Machiavelli's if my church won't teach this, I'm in Machiavelli's world. By the, by the way, we, we're, uh, just, we're out of time, but we got to say this just in defense of Machiavelli. Okay. <laughs> hey, let's end this right now. Let's wrap it up. <clears throat> because Machiavelli was writing to deliberately farsify. He was spoofing the, uh, the Medici uh, clan. So he was writing the prince in a sense to display how awful and Machiavellian <laughs> the Medicis were. It's why he got kicked out. He was protesting. He was writing in a sense uh, like uh, Jonathan Swift. He was writing the tales of the tub. He was, he was writing a spoof. He was saying, don't you see how awful this Machiavellian system is? So Machiavelli, Ma Machiavelli himself was not Machiavellian. We'll have to talk about this later. 
Yeah. But, well, I, but, I don't know nothing but common law, but, but, but I think the but, whole point is just a little bit. I've, I've ceased to worry about winning and losing and saying what legal argument most promotes the glory and honor of God. Yeah. And I will make that if nobody else will. Amen. And ultimately, because I believe the world is formed by the word of God, it's sustained by the word of God, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, I'm going to put out things that are consonant with the word of God and trust that God is going to debabalize and weed his garden. And he will fill the earth with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea, which is not a puddle, as, as we begin to do this. And that's what and, the Bible prescribes. Yeah. That's right. It, it, it says just follow God. It doesn't say go and make this legal argument, make this philosophy, make this compromise. I heard a washer, Paul Washer, make a, a quote this week, and it amplifies what both of you said. One was, they said, where did everything go wrong? He said, it's the pastors. Got away from the word. Number two is he said, another problem is regarding the way our world is and our politics is we go, we fall, to, I wish there were some people that did not fall to pragmatism. Yes. Mm-hmm. That's so all of our talking about is just walking it. Yeah. Amen. All right. Okay. That's a good place to end. Um, So if you're single, get married. If you're married, have kids, and you have kids, go baptize them. Okay? That's that's it. That's the answer. Thank you, guys. Thanks for being at the first live. Thank you, George, for coming. Thanks for sticking out. I am sweating like a a pig about to get to a slaughter.